Welcome to the inaugural episode of Network Neighborhood, where we talk to folks in the IT industry about being human. And our guest today is Denise Fishburn, aka Fish. Fish, would you introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, Ethan, Ethan, and thank you so much for having me on. Uh, my name is Denise Fishburn, aka Fish, and I work as a solutions architect um, in security at Cisco Systems, and I've been with Cisco for 22 years. Cisco for 22 years. Okay. Now, you did not start out as a solutions architect. In fact, if we dig back <laughs> through your history, uh, you were 19 and, of all things, arrested for drunk driving. Please tell us that story, Denise. Uh, yeah, I was 19 years old, and uh, I got picked up for drunk driving for DUI. I think, if I recall correctly, uh, I was sitting at a green light ready for turn red, is my understanding. And uh, so, yeah, mom and dad had to get me. And that kind of sort of was a, a pivotal moment in my life because it was the time frame that I realized that there really are consequences to actions. And that was the first time I'd ever really gotten in trouble. And uh, it was shocking to actually be in a police station and be actually put up on charges and stuff. So... Um, I'm actually really grateful for that event. It really turned my life around. Yeah, so I'm really, I'm really happy about that. Really, really happy about that. Yeah, happy about such an, uh, a terrible thing happening. But, but as you say, these pivotal moments change us and p- can put us on a different trajectory. What were the immediate consequences of that? I'm curious. Did you <laughs> end up in doing jail time or community service or something? <laughs> no, I didn't end up doing jail time. Uh, basically, what had happened, um, actually, there's a little bit of a precursor to that. Uh, I grew up in Princeton High School in a bit of a sheltered life, went to Ohio State University, got accepted in the honors program, and didn't quite get through the first trimester. They had this beautiful thing called freshman forgiveness, so it just disappears. I tried it again the second semester, came home, got a part-time job living with mom and dad. They did not put me in jail. What they do, what they did back then for the first offender is they... Um, There's huge fines. I can't even remember what they were now, but I remember my parents paying them and then having to pay them off. And then you don't, in New Jersey back then, you you lose your license for six months. So um, I had to take the bus and not drive uh, for six months. So that was a lot of having to, that was actually, I think, my first time realizing that I had to rely on other people. Like I had to rely on people to help me or uh, walk a mile and a half to get to the bus station to go to work. Um, So it was a very eye-opening, reality-based experience. After a while, I went to community college and tried to kind of sort of piece it all back together again. So in community college then, was was it education that you were looking to to turn your life around, so to speak? Um, in the community college, I mean, I was just trying to get back into college again, but I, I wasn't going to be able to... Well, okay. Let's say mom and dad also had a little bit of a, they're like, we're not paying for you to go to college. (laughs) Been there, done that, you know? So um, I also had a bit of proving myself to do. So that was actually one of the reasons that I had to go to community college for about a year to show that uh, I was, you know, like many things worth the investment, worth the financial investment, because mom and dad had actually paid for the two trimesters that failed at Ohio State. And uh, so I went to community college and I paid for that on my own. And then that was kind of sort of the agreement that if I got my computer, if I started doing credits and did good grades and stuff like that for a year, then uh, they would do financial assistance again and let me go to real college. (laughs) Real college. (laughs) Oh, I can't believe I just said that. Yeah, a lot of people that go to community college are really insulted right now, Fish. Oh, my gosh. Actually, actually, um, I was talking to a friend of mine. He actually did something, I think, very brilliant. 
Because, you know, when you graduate from a college, when you graduate from a four-year college, people just look at like your GPA from the college. And so what he did was he actually finished community college, then went into the four-year college um, and then had the GPA from the four-year college because they take the credits and they move them over. Um, it was just, I graduated from this college with this GPA. And uh, he was able to afford college much better that way. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. So in, in your college career, uh, real college, community college, and, and otherwise, what degree did you end up with, if any? <laughs> um, well, I had a bit of a, had a, bit of a um, split personality thing on that. Um, I kid that I'm a Gemini. So dad is a PhD aeronautical engineering and mom's a PhD psychology, I mean, sociology. And so there was part of me that wanted to go and like help people and be a therapist or a psychologist. And then there was part of me that wanted to go into computers because I loved programming and had that as a part-time job in high school and then all throughout college. So I was a dual major, computer science and psychology. And, um, and then I have to admit, I was like, I am so tired of being in college. And so I, I could, I could, I was at the point where if, if I did one more semester and I chose one as a major, I could graduate with that as a major. So I was like, oh, I'll just go and figure out which one has a minor. College offered, offered neither one as a minor. And um, so I couldn't really decide. I will be honest, what happened that day was I happened to go to like a Bed Bath & Beyond place. To, I needed to buy some stuff. And um, I got into a conversation with the, the uh, assistant manager of the store. Um, I didn't tell her about anything. I was like, oh, how, you know, how'd you become the assistant manager? And she said, oh, yeah, well, I graduated from college with a um, psychology major. And I didn't feel like going to school um, but there's really nothing you can do with a bachelor's degree in psychology um, unless you go to school more. And all of a sudden, I was like, I don't want to go to school more. <laughs> so I went back and just um, finished with a computer science degree. I was actually back in 1989 when I graduated. AI was something that people were talking about. I thought AI would be really cool and combine the psychology and the computer science yeah, was the Lisp programming language something that was hot back then? Actually, I took I took Lisp. I took yeah. Lisp in uh, in college at Rutgers University. Yeah, I took I took Lisp. I I just got a I got a job offer from IBM. Uh, actually, you want to hear that little story? Um, oh well, well, okay. So IBM, <laughs> right? Uh, Big Blue. So uh, Denise goes from drunk driving and then uh, working her way back in, getting a degree, and then now you're now you're fully corporate. So it, it's it's almost like you've been uh, you know, radicalized to uh, to corporate culture now. If you ended up yes. out of all places, IBM, yes. IBM, yeah. Well, they they went to my college recruiting thing. Uh, they interviewed me out in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, so this is another fascinating story. I find that there's lots of interesting coincidences and odd things that happen in life. Um, so I got this rejection letter from them. Um, it had IBM in the upper right, left-hand corner. I was so excited. This is back in the day where they like mail you. And uh, so I got this lovely rejection letter. And that hurt. And they didn't say why. And then, um, and there was a whole bunch of other words in there, but I didn't read the rest of them. And then the next day, I get another letter. I don't open it. I throw it in the garbage. And I'm just like devastated. I'm like, oh my God, who needs to be rejected twice? Are you all idiots? My girlfriend comes home and I'm like, yeah, IBM rejects me again. And she's like, really? So I go into the trash. I pull, pull the, the, the piece of the envelope out, open it up to read to her. <laughs> uh, basically what happened was, is that Boulder, Colorado just didn't, they had lost their hiring recs. And they had passed my name on to uh, IBM North Carolina and IBM North Carolina wanted to interview me. 
Aha. So you were rejected only because of, you know, not because of you, but just because we don't have a place for you anymore, but someone else might and yeah. someone else did. So glad I opened up the other envelope. Yeah. So I went to, uh, so I, I got in at IBM in North Carolina back in uh, 1989 and into corporate, into the corporate world and corporate life. Did you and wear a suit? I did wear a suit at IBM ah. back in 1989. Um, in fact, um, I started off and, and this is not something that everyone knows, but Ethan, are you sitting down? I am. Okay. I actually went to modeling school when I was in high school. So I actually went to Barbizon Modeling School for an entire year, learned how to you know, walk in heels and do all this stuff, and actually did some modeling things back then. And so when I started at IBM, I had got all of the proper suits. I mean, we're talking the full suits, right? The the Evan Pacones, the all that, the Talbots, the, the higher end suits, you know, dressing for success and also the, uh, the heels to go with it. So yes, in fact, uh, and that was expected back then in 1989. I even worked in 1990 third shift and it was still expected that if you came in third shift, you were to be wearing the, the typical outfit. So I'd get in at 10 o'clock at night, work in the lab, run cables in high heels. In high heels in your Talbot suit. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then I, because I would leave at like, uh, you know, it was typically like a 12-hour day. So I'd get in at 10 a.m. and then I'd leave by like, I mean, 10 p.m. Then I'd leave by 10 a.m. So I'd be leaving when everyone else was coming, you know, was already there. So um, I was told I had to, yeah, wear a suit. Oh my. So, so how did the IBM corporate life, even working third shift, how did that sit with you? Because if your background was footloose, fancy free, not playing by the rules all the time, which is sort of how I'm imagining just based on uh, what, what little I know of your high school, how did you fit into that world? Well, I was a, actually, I was a very good, my sister was the one who crawled, who came out of, who climbed out of the, out of the bedroom at night. I'm not too sure how she got down from the second floor, but somehow <laughs> or other. So in high school, I actually was in high school, I was a little boring. So in high school, I kind of sort of just listened to mom and dad and, and, and led a bit more of a uh, sheltered life. I actually was in Girl Scouts till my uh, senior year of high school. I didn't run with a, a, a crazy crowd. I didn't start doing the wild and crazy uh, drinking and stuff really until um, right after I graduated from high school and then went off to college. It was more weird because the, the job I'd had in high school and college actually was for a small company. And so that was the weirdest thing. But I had quickly adapted that I was going to be IBM CEO by the time I was 35, if IBM was at all smart about it. Um, <laughs> I was a cocky little thing, I got to tell you. Um, well, okay. So actually, let's drill into that for a second. So you had that aspiration, realistic or not, and you had a certain perception of yourself, uh, realistic or not, that you could actually ascend to that by the, at the young age of, uh, of 35. Yeah. 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 Okay, so let's look at IBM in the you know, late 80s and early 90s. We have challenges with women in tech trying to you know, rise up through the ranks, and, and they don't always get a fair shake compared to the men. What was yeah. IBM's corporate culture like that at that time for the ladies? Well, it was, uh, it was interesting because I don't think I went through the normal corporate culture. Um, I was actually identified early on to be in the executive fast track program. Honestly, I think it's because of the fact that I did have some intelligence. I had gone to modeling school and I was wearing the right suits. So um, I looked like a candidate that could become an executive. 
So and dress for success actually meant something at that point. It really did. Yeah, it really, it really did. And carrying yourself right and showing that you have potential. I followed around a, uh, oh, wow, I just remembered her name, Carla Good. I followed her around. I think it was uh, once a month we would meet for lunch. And then once a quarter, I would actually shadow her the entire day. I never felt that it ever did anything um, negative for me because of the fact that uh, I was identified early on to be the executive fast track program. So it's possible that it actually worked out as positive. It might have been at that point in time that they were already starting to pick women to groom them for executive positions in the future. However, you did not end up as the CEO of IBM. Uh, you ended up at Cisco and you've been there a long time. So what, what happened? Well, there's a few things that happened. One, um, I did ask the woman I was shadowing one time, I was in the closet. Um, I was not openly gay at the time. And so I did ask her if there was something that was, you know, an outside thing in your life, not something that, you know, impacted work, you know, kind of sort of how that was. And I would say that back then in the late 1980s, I mean, like 1990, early 1990s, being gay <laughs> uh, at work and being an executive. So it quickly occurred to me that that was going to be something that I was going to have to stay in the closet. That was going to be, since of course I was going to become CEO by the time I was 35 in my mind, um, <laughs> my little delusional mind, that would then be hard. And I would have to like, you know, stay closeted at a very public level. So I, which was cognitive dissonance for you. You didn't want to have to be closeted. You wanted to be you and accepted for who you were while at the same time having whatever executive position that uh, you were able to attain. Yeah. And that wasn't the, that wasn't the, um, that wasn't the environment, the business environment in any way, shape or form back then at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I was even closeted as an individual contributor. Again, closeted of necessity. The corporate culture was not yeah. per- permitting of this. So maybe a few people n- knew or did, did no one at all know because you were afraid of the impact being gay, would, openly gay, would have oh. on your career. I would say that um, for the first, like, I was at IBM for seven years, and I would say for the first four years, I was completely and utterly in the closet. So I didn't go to lunch with people. I didn't hang out with them outside. It was just too exhausting to have to pronoun switch all the time. So no, I I went to work. I got my work done. And then I left. And then after about four years, I confided in just a couple people. And they didn't like freak out. So that was kind of cool. So I probably confided in about four or five people. Clearly, one of them was not the person I should have confided in because I started getting uh, hate mail and letters and um, a whole bunch of stuff like that. And in fact, one day somebody, I guess I didn't respond to the hate mail. I didn't show that it bothered me. So I actually had somebody take a permanent marker and uh, mark my monitor at the time. Mark it with some kind of a threat or an epithet or something? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez, okay. And, and what, what was your recourse within IBM? What could you do about that? Well, I didn't want to be, I think there's a lot of perception. And so that you don't, you don't want to cause problems. You want to show that you can handle things on your own because I still wanted to be in management later on. I had already given up the CEO dream because I didn't want to be that closeted at that level, but I hadn't, I wanted to show I could still be management. So I didn't want to show that I needed to, that I was quote unquote weak and that I needed to go report in or tattletale on people. 
And so no one ever actually knew about the letters. Um, I told no one ever. And um, I had to say something about the monitor because it was a permanent marker on my monitor and I needed a new monitor. Um, they did probe me as to whether or not that was the only event. And I held to it that it was. However, now you're in a position where you're not entirely comfortable in the IBM environment. You know the future at IBM isn't what you had originally envisioned. So what happens next? Back then, and I know a lot of people at IBM today, and it's, it's radically changed, but back then in like 1995, 96, they still used to take their bottom performers. Um, it seemed to be that this sometimes happened. They took their bottom performers and had them kind of sort of go to other groups. So there were two guys in our groups that um, were allowed to go to this IP group, and I wanted to go. And IP is in TCP IP, not intellectual property. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, as in TCP IP. Okay. Um, uh, or UD UDP, if you don't want to, like, you know, be stateful. <laughs> right. Um, I'm like, it's so sad. We say TCP IP. Poor UDP is just forgotten all the time. But yeah, so they got to go over to this group where there was um, IBM's router at the time. I asked if I could go over there, and I was a top 10% performer. I didn't really get a lot of support on that. So basically, the Reader's Digest version is I complained the crap to my parents, but I never planned on leaving IBM because I had like a, a loyalty thing as well. So they basically said, um, although they, 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 they never said they said it this way, we'll continue to listen to you gripe <laughs> um, <laughs> if you send out three resumes and do one onsite interview because they just thought that I didn't know the rest of the uh, industry. I sent to SAS and to Nortel and to Cisco. And I got summarily rejected by SAS. I don't know why I even thought I was just sending out three. And then I got uh, requested interviews at Nortel and at Cisco and got job offers from both. And, uh, but I didn't want the job. So it was kind of funny. My attitude at, at both interviews was not the attitude it would have been if I'd wanted the job. Now, um, now, Nortel at the time, they would have been a, a pretty big company, quite yeah. quite substantial. Cisco, somewhat less so, not what they are mm -hmm. today as far as size and scope. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. Um, so Nortel would have been switching from IBM to probably another IBM type environment at that time frame. And also the other thing that was happening at IBM was, and I'll be honest, that when I actually came back and said that I, I was you know, going to take the job offer from Cisco uh, and give me my two-week notice, there were tons of people who actually told me that this whole IP thing, this is you know, 1996, wasn't going to go anywhere. And this was not a safe job. And Cisco at the time only had three buildings in RTP, so it was very small. And, uh, and those three buildings, I'm sorry, two buildings, two buildings in RTP. And um, they had only just built the second one. And so I had a lot of people who were supposedly very concerned also implore me to, to not go there into this startup. Because you were dealing with SNA as the networking protocol of choice back in the IBM world, right? Oh, yeah. And that's the reason why Cisco hired me. Cisco hired me specifically for my SNA knowledge. I was targeted to be in the back-end TAC, and TAC was wonderful, I love TAC, in the back-end technical assistance center. Once I got into, you know, once I knew what IP address was, um, and I was gonna go into the back-end TAC for DLSW, remote source rep bridging, source rep bridging, and STUN and SDLC and all that kind of fun stuff. 
Yeah, all that kind of fun stuff that now is, uh, of course, more or less completely gone. You almost never see it in a production environment anymore. Yeah. In fact, I don't think I've seen it for about 10 years. And, yeah. uh, and TCPIP is the world because right at that time, uh, Microsoft was driving IP very hard. And uh, so was Novell. Novell had even given up the IPX flag and had migrated all of their services over to TCPIP right around that time. Everything was converging around Ethernet and, well, uh, and IP. Seriously, the only thing constant is change in our, in our industry. Um, in 1997, when I sat for my CCIE exam, you know, Apple Talk was on it, IPX was on it, DECnet could have been on it, Banyan Vines could have been on it. Maybe it was on it. I can't remember. That was 1997. Uh, there were so many things that were very popular, of course. NetBIOS, I mean, when I sat for the exam in 1997, 21 and a half years ago. And so the only thing, the only thing constant has changed, and not to derail and get over into like automation and you know, <laughs> everything else, it's just that it's going to be an evolving thing. It just is, our industry. Yeah, I agree. No, it, it, it is. And you know, we've been watching the changes come, come and go. And even now within TCP IP, the changes are, are fairly steady. Yep. So now you're at Cisco, uh, yep. Denise. You you've got this. You've landed this job. You're in uh, in tech. You're working uh, on supporting customers. You've got all this SNA knowledge and so on. Um, are you, now? Uh, how did that impact you being you? Um, were you able to be openly gay in oh this environment, gosh. or was this yes. still an evolution? No, from day one. I was like, you know what? Screw it. And um, uh, it was just too exhausting. And um, so, so really from day one, it's not like I wore like a, a big, you know, you know, t-shirt, but it was just <laughs> like, if somebody asked me a question about what, you know, what I did outside or started to become friends with me or whatever, you know, I was just like, oh, well, my girlfriend and I, you know, so, mm -hmm. and I'll be honest, I, I don't, I, I usually would just say my girlfriend and I, and then let them just kind of sort of carry on because by then saying, you know, it's like, Ethan, you don't necessarily go up to somebody and say, hi, I'm straight. I'm heterosexual. So no, it's just exactly. like, you know, people just kind of <laughs> but if it comes up naturally in conversation, right. then you just exactly. have that natural conversation. And, and, right. and so you're, you know, you talk about your, your, you know, men talk about their girlfriends, their wives, whatever, and people just infer. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and getting back to that psychology major. So that's the way I've always handled it. Instead of saying the words that have such stigma. And, and and that makes sense. And and then you find out very quickly that uh, people are comfortable or not comfortable and, and can react however you need. But uh, so so let's let's take your uh, Cisco career. I actually will career. say one thing, Ethan. Um, it actually worked to my advantage um, because there was a bunch of guys in tech and we were sitting next to a whole bunch of women who were in telemarketing. So they would actually send me ahead to go like, you know, I don't know, supposedly be lost and then go to this one specific woman's cubicle. And then talk to her for a while, and then they'd follow on telling me that my manager needed to talk to me, and then I'd, I'd introduce them, and then I'd leave. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, I became this, like, wing woman thing. <laughs> so how did your career at Cisco progress, I guess? You've yeah. been there 22 – actually, let me phrase the question a different way. You've been at Cisco for 22 years. Okay, in tech, that is unheard of. People don't stay at one company for yeah, that I've, long. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that. I've noticed that. <laughs> and, and even within Cisco, I mean, <laughs> Cisco's like, if you are working on the vendor side of things, Cisco's, you've probably worked there at some time or other, but typically don't make your entire career uh, within Cisco. Uh, you know, I myself, I, I had several jobs, mostly two, three, four year stints, max, and then I'd be off to something else. How is it you've been at Cisco for that long? Well, actually, your two, three year thing actually um, did happen to me. It happened to me at IBM. 
um, I would change uh, groups every like two or three years because I'd, I, a little ADD, oh, look, a squirrel. Um, <laughs> and so I'd be like, I'd get bored. I'd be like, okay, well, this is challenging. Let me go learn it. And then once I felt like I learned a lot about it, I'd be like, okay, I'm bored now. I want a new challenge. When I got to, to Cisco, I was originally TAC. So for the first year, I was in the front end TAC where, because um, I didn't know what an IP address was yet. So I was RMA and stuff like that. They put me on the phones the first week. I was so scared. And um, after about, uh, I think maybe eight months to, to 12 months, whatever, I forget. I then went to my uh, back end TAC. I, I really liked the way that Cisco did TAC back then. You would just immediately get to a back-end TAC person, which would be, you know, whoever could help you. And so I was in the back-end TAC probably from like 97 to 99. And I wanted to learn more than like DLSW and source rep bridging. I joined advanced services. So I was, I was advanced services. I um, were basically back then, the company pays Cisco a substantial amount of money, which was like equivalent to two times my my salary. And I'm like, hey, where's my money? Um, <laughs> but but in advanced services, I got to actually see more what customers' environments were like and things. And I got to see more about where I wanted to play. And then I kind of sort of got bored with that because I wasn't in the lab as much as I wanted to be. And so I started actively looking for other things on campus. I heard about this job, which seemed perfect for me. I would say that, yeah, I worked traditional Cisco from 1996 until February 1st of 2001. So from that perspective, it's like five years, right? And then I worked this other group, which is called CPOC. CPOC is customer proof of concept labs. And what basically happens is... And SE contacts us, they try to sell you, you know, they're like, hey, Ethan, you know, for packet pushes, you really need to buy this, 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 and this for your network. And it'll work great with your legacy equipment. And then you're like, yeah, prove it. And then they contact us and say that they need to come in within two weeks. And then we put them on mute. We laugh at them. And then we take them off. What? (laughs) We take them off of mute. It's okay. You know, I thought I was going to be CEO of IBM at the right 35. I understand delusions. And um, so then we, 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 you know, we, we talked to them about when we actually can get them in. And it was really a very, very cool gig. I would say it was my dream job. So I would say that it was that job from um, February 1st of 2001 until about a year ago that it wasn't just working at Cisco, really. It was working in CPOC. And CPOC was very much... This small little world of just, there could be changes as to like who our VP was or whatever, but our day-to-day job for 17 years was the same. Play in the lab, have a customer come and have a custom test plan that they want to see, which was really cool. This is what they want to see. Work them through that for the entire week, run whatever tests. The week before is setup week. Uh, and you got to be a special kind of crazy, by the way, because I have slept on the floor before, because whether you like it or not, the customer shows up on Monday and uh, and things don't always work exactly. Um, so so setup week is uh, is is a special kind of week. Um, and then the week before you try to do all the manual labor. So there's pre setup week where all the manual labor, the cards, the cables, the chassis, the code, and then our starter configs so we can get to our TFTP server to load the code. And then the second week is putting in the configs for the design, running through the test plan. And then the next week is the customer there. And so what was really cool about that is that worked great for my ADD. If it was a boring test, something that I could do in my sleep, no big deal. 
Um, next month, I probably have a more difficult one. If it was something that was just insanely difficult, you know, I exited out of it and I knew more. So what I would say is for 17 years, and the analogy I give, Ethan, is the analogy I give is like Dungeons and Dragons. I'm the, you know, I'm the healer. You're the, you know, you're, I don't know how many people know Dungeons and Dragons, but you're the guy, you know, you're the guy who's the good fighter. And then we pick up someone who's a thief. And then we enter into the dungeon and into the caves and we meet monsters and stuff. And then we come out of it victorious, right? And that's what 17 years of CPOC was. It was, I have this specialty, you have this specialty, and then someone else has another specialty. And then the three of us together during setup week would enter into the diagram. You would battle duplicate IP addresses or defects or design issues. And then you do it all together, all three of you. And then all three of you would come out of it you know, with even more knowledge. So that was very addicting and very wonderful for 17 years. It really reminds me what you, the CPOC environment that you're describing, what the job was. It reminds me a lot of my time consulting. So in a consultancy that I worked for, there were each of us with our different specialties. We had certain customers that we needed yeah. to deal with. Um, sometimes we were doing something similar where we'd need to prove that this technology that we're trying to sell, you can do what you are trying to do and here's how it works. Let's all sit down together and take a look. And each of us had specialties. Oh, I was the uh, you know the NT guy, and so and so was the uh, you know, the hotshot Novell Groupwise person, really good with email, and somebody was really sharp with uh, with internet gateways, and you know, and so on. And we'd all come together to meet that customer's need. And you know, if you are an ADD sort of a person, you need a new project, something else going on. Boy, it was constant, constant churn of new projects and new challenges and new tech and uh, going to a class and uh, so-and-so just launched something. They want to partner with us so we can sell it. And you got to learn that and uh, always new technology and new challenges. And um, I'm surprised that within Cisco, you'd have such an opportunity like that uh, in CPOC. But I get it from what you're describing. It uh, really does remind me of consulting. You know, I got to talk offline. I have to learn more about consulting. I have to come up with my AC plan at some point in time, my after Cisco plan. <laughs> You can talk. You're among uh, you're among many friends here, and many of us in the community are uh, either have been at consultants or they are are today. And yeah, speaking of which, uh, we, we should talk about community, Denise, because you know you're talking to me on a podcast now. Yeah. But that is not the Denise of uh, of old. Perhaps I I don't yeah. think you were a very social person uh, once no. upon a time, but but now you are. Talk yeah. about that transition. It's funny because to this day, I really don't actually go out to lunch. Um, I think because of a number of things, when I was in high school and college, the job I had was actually for my dad's company. People can actually look it up. at what It's www.scitech.com. And my dad started that company and it was in our basement. I was originally a receptionist and then became a computer programmer. Punch cards. Yeah, baby. He was concerned that people might try to, you know, suck up to the boss's daughter. And I was very naive and didn't really know stuff. I might say that I was angry with my dad because, you know, I was living in high school, you know, <laughs> you know, when I was in high school. So my dad kind of sort of um, suggested that maybe I don't go out to lunch or don't. I was just unique. I was special. I was the boss's daughter and people might have ulterior motives. And so that was my first time realizing that people had like ulterior motives in the work environment. And so that was my high school job and also my college job. And I never went out to lunch with people um, except for my dad. And I never did things outside of work with coworkers. And then I got hired at IBM and I was sent to Los Angeles. 
And uh, even before I was sent to Los Angeles, I didn't go out to lunch with people because I was in the closet. And it's absolutely bloody exhausting to try to have to have a conversation while you're in the closet. Um, you know, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, we went out with a friend and we did this and this. And <laughs> no. Yeah. So it was just exhausting. Right. And so I couldn't be myself. And then I went to Los Angeles. And when I went to Los Angeles, there were three people who at the time <laughs> I thought were old as dirt and they should be past retirement. They're probably younger than I am now, but they, they would work from home and they had to come in while I was there for six months. They would come in at 6 a.m. in the morning because this is Los Angeles. And then they would leave at 2 p.m. And we never went out and had lunch. I just continued that for seven years at IBM. And then at Cisco, it's not that I, I just didn't, I always wonder, ugh, my mind is always racing. So I am always wondering why people are sucking up to me or why, why people want to get to know me. And why would one, some stranger out of nowhere come up to me until I feel like I can be comfortable with them. It's actually emotionally draining and a lot of energy because I can't stop my mind from trying to figure out while they're talking, what is it they really want? Can we just get to the point? Yeah. Is there an angle? What do you want from me? What, yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I can relate to that because a lot of times people don't talk to me unless they want something yeah. and I'm just dying for them to get to the, what do you want? So I can figure out if I can deal with it or not, or what yeah. I want to do enough with the small talk. Let's, let's move on to business. Yeah. yeah I, and that's, so that's really hard for me. Yeah, that's the whole network detective thing. I'm always trying to, I do the whole network detective thing in my own personal life. What is it that you want? Where are we going with this? You know, that just, it just happens until I, until I trust the person. Going out to lunch and stuff like that was just not fun for me. And really what ended up happening was everything changed. I mean, my first eight years at Cisco Live Networkers, I'll be honest about something. I was, it was 2006 at, at Networkers in Las Vegas, and I thought I had arrived. And so I went to dinner with a bunch of other Cisco presenters. And we were at this long table and there were some people um, above us. It was some Vegas thing where there's, you know, two tiers of things. And people started talking about how, you know, they had some stupid person in their class or someone asked dumb questions. And I just had this very visceral reaction of, this was like my second night at Networkers. And I was just so thrilled to be a Cisco live speaker and to be able to help people and stuff. And I, I had two different very visceral reactions. One was I wanted to punch them. <laughs> and uh, two, I was disillusioned. In, in other words, people complaining about having someone stupid in their class is totally missing the point of being an instructor and being a presenter. Like I cannot express. Yes. After that incident for eight years, I never went out again with people. I think in eight years of Cisco Live networkers, I can say that I went out less than five times with people. I would, and that would only be someone that I, I intimately knew. Well, not intimately. No, that was a, <laughs> okay, then. Um, <laughs> I know what you mean, I think. <laughs> someone you know well and have built the trust with. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, like I, I went out, out with uh, Russ White or one of my friends, Steve, you know, and, and so that I could actually just be myself because then it's not exhausting. So really what ended up happening was I just happened to have met Amy Lewis um, at Comms Ninja. And she asked me to, this is 2013, she asked me to apply for the Cisco Champion Program. When I heard apply, I heard the fear of rejection. So I was like, 
you know, that's okay. No. And so, and so I was like, no, I'm too busy to do it. And she's like, well, congratulations. You're a Cisco champion. Now I'm like, wait, what? And so I didn't realize that she was running the program, talked about it. And I was scared and people seemed to be really nice and like Amy engineer on Twitter. So I DM'd her one time and said that I was really scared about being with the Cisco champions at Cisco Live. Well, actually, I didn't say that. I said, I'm starting to get really nervous about Cisco Live. And she said, well, if I was going to speak in front of 400 people, I'd be nervous also. And I'm like, oh, no, that part I can do. It's the getting together with these Cisco champions because some of them seem like they're really kind of sort of full of themselves. And I really don't. And so she said, just stick with me and follow me and I'll introduce you to the cool people. So if you ever notice I'm a complete puppy dog around certain people like um, Amy and stuff like that, I'll completely puppy dog around them. Um, there's a small group that I know will have my back in case I go to a customer engagement and customer appreciation party and someone comes up to me and starts coming to me and be like, well, come on, what do you really think about like Chuck Robbins, you know, while they're, while they're drunk or whatever. And they'll, they'll see me from across the room and they'll come get me because I'm just not going to be like, get out of my face. It's just not my style, but they'll come over and tell them to get out of my face. So it's really because of uh, John Spade, who invited me to a Google Hangout, and then Amy Lewis, who I met from that, and really a lot because of, of Amy. Basically, we all have Amy Engineer to blame for me being social. It's all her fault because I was actually about to bail from the Cisco Champion program and go back to go to Cisco Live, 8 a.m. in the morning, be back at my hotel by 6 o'clock at night, have room service, go to sleep, rinse, repeat. There are a lot of good people in the community that uh, that I, I know you've run into, and because uh, I've met some of those same people, they're not full of themselves. They no. know they have things to learn. They're more interested in just sharing. A lot of them are podcasters or bloggers, no. and they just want to disseminate knowledge as best they can and see if they can make the world a little little bit better of a place. It's not all about ego. It's just about uh, about community, uh, which sounds generic, but um, but but it's about other people, not about yes. yourself. Absolutely. And I think there is a transition because remember, I wanted to be CEO when I was in my 26. So it was about me when I was in my 20s. But the people I gravitate towards are the people who are truly building community for community's sake. It's really that one for all, all for one mentality. Ethan, do you actually know that at the meetup tweet up at Cisco Live in US this year, I'm actually wearing a musketeer outfit? can't say I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> there was this whole Twitter feed that was like, you know, I was talking uh, to um, someone on Twitter and I, I just all of a sudden said, you know, one for all, all for one, you know, true community. And suddenly I wanted like, I thought about musketeers. And so, yeah, so I'm actually wearing, I, I actually already bought it. I have the hat. I have the whole outfit. Oh yeah. Boy. yeah. But that's community it, to me. Community to me is just about being yourself and sharing Really sharing, really learning from each other and being there. I mean, real true community and there's just nothing like it. And it's so strong and it's so awesome. And, you know, I do view you as part of my community. I feel extremely, extremely comfortable and myself around you. Oh, thanks for saying so. Now, your, the way you describe community, uh, learning, uh, sharing knowledge and so on, I think that is exemplified in your networking with fish website. It's very instructional. Uh, it's very educational. You kind of know what you're doing. It's very methodical. And it's, it's the way I look at it, it's designed to be consumed uh, by people who want to learn. Yeah. Uh, how is that? How did that site come about? What was your, why did you start this thing up? Gosh, I don't even remember what year 
but um, quite a while ago, I wanted to blog about some like BGP stuff and share things. I chatted with a friend of mine who was blogging at Network World. I got on with Network World, but back then I, I didn't really know what I was doing. So if anyone searches Denise Fishburne and Network World, you'll notice that all of the images are all messed up now. <laughs> I, I blogged some stuff there, but I didn't really have an editor. I just could put whatever I wanted out there. And basically what happened was, um, again, back in 2013, a friend of mine, Russ White, was saying, you should blog at Packet Pushers. You should blog at Packet Pushers. And so, and I hadn't met, met you yet. Um, at the same time, there were some other people that had their own sites. And so I went to Cisco Live that year again in 2013. I went to one person and said, I'm trying to decide, do I blog at someone else's side or do I blog at my own? If I blog at my own, you know, and then learning from other people, again, getting back to community, people who have been there ahead of me and then letting them give me their experience, strength and hope from everything that they've done. And so that I don't have to necessarily make the same mistakes. And that's, again, an example of community. So I was talking to this one person and they're like, well, you just should talk to her. So this was the editor of Network Computing. So, and then you and I met, I hadn't really decided on my own website, but so basically what I did was I blogged on uh, packet pushers and I was just like, so thrilled. Cause I'm like, oh my God, I've arrived. <laughs> and, and then I blogged at network computing and did a seven part IPv6 series over there. At the same time, I was investigating and asking more people about their own sites uh, and how to do it. I also admit that I knew that my time would be like, if I said, I'm going to do this with everything that we're always being pulled in many different directions, if I was actually going to design the site myself, it wasn't going to happen for another year. So I actually paid $800 to have the initial site built because I didn't know anything about WordPress or anything. So it got launched in like August of 2013. If I put ads on there, then I could draw more people. But I don't know, you know, even if it's only a couple people a day that read stuff, I like passing on freely what other people have passed on to me. And what I'm about to say is not a popular thing. I don't believe in the self-made man or woman in the sense that we are actually more tied to each other. Sometimes we think we do things alone, but we don't actually think it all through. Because even if we read a book to study for a CCIE, somebody else wrote that book. I was just thinking that everything I've learned about networking, I've learned from other people. Right. Uh, books, uh, blogs, uh, interviewing people for a podcast. I, I've learned so much. Just <laughs> yesterday, I had this fun adventure where I posted a YouTube video, uh, something about Spanitry, and I got a detail wrong about how links are blocked. Because to be honest, I haven't thought much about root ports, designated ports, and blocking ports since... I don't know, probably when I was primed and ready to take uh, CCIE level exams. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I just kind of had forgotten exactly how it worked. And someone called me out on it on, uh, on YouTube. And I was like, I started digging around going, ah, crap, I screwed that up. Pulled the video down, reshot the whole thing and put it up last night. Well, what's that an example of community? It's someone reminding Absolutely. me, you know, Absolutely. teaching me, even yep. though it was something in theory I knew before, and I'm learning that from other people. Even now, every day it happens. I'm learning from others, and I don't believe in the self-made either. It's funny. Yeah. Uh, Russ and I collaborated on a book. Um, I was able to uh, get some chapters into that book and had to do so much reading and research <laughs> the work of other people to write oh, yeah. these chapters, and my name's on that book with Russ. And so in theory, I'm the authority, right? Not right. really. What, how does it really happen? It really happens yeah. that all the work that these other people have did is something that 
I was able to benefit from. And the only value I'm bringing to the picture is hopefully understanding it well enough and explaining it well enough that someone else can learn. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, we're responsible for the footwork. We can be we can be very thrilled with the footwork and how much our energy and dedication to something, you know, moves us towards a goal or direction. But to think that we do it all on our own, I don't feel is true because everything that we read is everything we learn from mm. is is even reading documentation someone else wrote it. <laughs> but I love my website. And I'm a big child and I love my little stickers. I love working hard and playing hard. My website, I love it a lot. I did nuke it. I nuked it and started from scratch on a new format probably last fall. So I'm still going through because I there's so many things I didn't know, Ethan. I had no idea about attributes on pictures. I had no idea about headings and flesh scoring or reading abilities or anything about like focus keywords or I I discovered that, you know, back in August and I looked at my website and and I also looked that uh, the original thing that I had designed had a, a, a JPEG that was pretty large. So it was not loading quickly. So I just, you know, I, I, I nuked it and started from scratch. I will say for people looking for building their own website, it is much easier to, I miss, I actually miss packet pushers. Um, I, I had a lot of fun on packet pushers. It's just that it's hard to blog in two different places at the same time. Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, the same problem. I was scattered all over. I was writing for network computing and my own blog and packet pushers. And I ended up consolidating pretty much everything on packet pushers. I still have a personal site that I blog on occasionally, but yeah, it's very difficult to maintain content on multiple. I get a lot more hits and a lot more audience if I put something out on packet pushers. So my reach of where I can, uh, where my knowledge gets shared is, is much further on someone else's site than doing your own site, especially if you decide not to do ads on the site. Denise, this has been a fantastic discussion. I have enjoyed uh, your <laughs> journey, how you got to uh, where you're at and, 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 and thoughts about what comes next and your contributions to community, et cetera. Been, been a wonderful discussion. Uh, how can people follow you? So to get hold of me, Twitter is at Denise Fishburn. My website is networkingwithfish.com. I also have a YouTube channel. Uh, you can also networking with fish and you can find my YouTube channel off of my website. You're going to be at Cisco live this year. Are you presenting or? Yes, I'm actually uh, doing a BGP technical seminar, but people have to pay extra for that. I'm, I'm teaching troubleshooting multicast and I'm also bringing back techniques of a network detective, but I'm reducing it from two hours into one hour. And, okay. and will so, you yeah. be wearing the musketeer outfit uh, oh my for the gosh, entirety I'm of Cisco kidding. Live? No, no, no. Just Sunday afternoon. <laughs> oh, oh so bummer. Okay. Yeah, no, no. You know, it's funny. People are like, oh, you should do this. When you do the network detective class, you should like wear, you know, a, a, a Sherlock Holmes thing. And I'm like, you know, it's 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 actually about teaching what I have up on the slide. <laughs> and not, not being a showcase for, yeah. for funny outfits and distracting people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so, but yeah, I'll be, we'll be wearing the, I will be wearing the Three Musketeers outfit from probably three o'clock on Sunday till probably about eight o'clock on Sunday. So wherever I am for about those five hours, I will be full musketeered out. And if you're at Cisco Live and you see Denise, uh, you'll be able to identify her that way. So go up and uh, and say hi. And thank you for listening to this very first episode of Network Neighborhood, which we're running in the community channel of Packet Pushers. You can find uh, show notes and your podcatcher, uh, packetpushers.net is where you can find uh, this show and over a thousand other episodes from across our podcast network for networking and infrastructure professionals. 
Our community blog is there. You know, Denise uh, mentioned that she had blogged at PacketPushers.net. You can too. Let us know if you're interested. PacketPushers at gmail.com. Tweet us at PacketPushers. We're on LinkedIn. You can ping us there. And uh, if you would, you could become a premium member at ignition.packetpushers.net. $99 a year gives you access to some premium content and uh, helps support us directly, and we'd really appreciate that. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.